This is episode 116 of How to Human. And in this very difficult episode, I want to discuss some racial topics. I want to discuss the racial nuance around the murder of Tessa Majors, who was a white freshman in Barnard College by three black poor kids in December 2019. And this came to mind when I read a quote from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez about the murder. And it comes from her perspective. And she has the progressive woke perspective, which is a valid perspective. And it there are some, there's some pushback to be had against what she says, and that will come a lot from the conservative side. And I want to discuss the nuance of this really complicated situation that touches race and socioeconomics, where those two intersect, um, how we've treated black people and how we have this weird set of cultures that live side by side that are still under the same American umbrella but are very very different and see how all that mixes together in this weird way that nobody really likes and we don't have a good fix for at least people think they have a good fix for it but so far nothing has been implemented that has worked so here is alexandria ocasio's alexandria ocasio cortez's quote she said it was a horrific tragedy on multiple levels and quote you have a tragedy of a young boy that was driven to that point taken to that point I think that tragedy is also one of intergenerational poverty, potentially a broken home, a lack of opportunity, unquote. And let's get into that. Let's get into this really sad story, not just of the murder, of, I mean, I don't think anybody would disagree with this, that there is... It's impossible to not bring race into this. I mean, we can say people are responsible for their own decisions. We can say that. And there is this, that's a really unempathetic lens that doesn't take the entire history into account. And when people talk about white privilege or male privilege or like whatever whatever kind of privilege that allows somebody to pass judgment on somebody else who isn't walking in their shoes part of that is an inability to empathize and and let's also be clear that infinite empathy also isn't right either in the end we're all human beings with agency and free will, and maybe we'll talk about whether or not free will exists. Sam Harris argues that it doesn't, which I think is a weird thing. And it's, 
it's a combination. People are the emergence of the system that they come from. All people, all races, all genders. And that builds people into something, a set of preferences, a set of ideas, a set of behaviors. And the complexity of being black and poor in this country is it's talked about and it's usually talked about from the lens of it's something we've got to fix and the hard part is when those people who have that message as well they should do it with empathy are I don't know if forgiving is the right word. The, the amount of empathy that somebody has for that situation gives them a point of view on a situation. So the pushback against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez here is that these kids, and here's the problem also, is right that they're kids, that they are, because they're kids, they're not entirely responsible for their their choices, which is tough because when you take people's lives, that's the biggest choice you can make. And they have role models that should be providing examples for their behavior and the lack of existence of good role models. Role models, one, is one thing, and two, good role models is another. That is something also that goes into the equation. And... That's also something to discuss in this situation. But what I'm saying is there's a broken system. There's a broken treatment by an entire race of people. There is... a set of choices based this is the hard part okay I'm dancing around words because I'm drawing a line here where I don't want to say that there are certain people who make bad choices of their own volition I want to blame external circumstances and that is the really difficult spot that are people responsible for their choices even if they're in a really tough situation because desperate people will do desperate things and then the question is are we rating people's level of desperation and then forgiving them for doing desperate things but what if other people are putting them in that situation do they bear any responsibility it is nuanced and complicated and what we're going to talk about today. The difficulty that a lot of people will have with AOC's quote is that it feels like an excuse for murder. That there is some kind of backstory that would allow 
for someone to end someone else's life. And that probably isn't what she was doing. What she was doing, among other things, was pointing out how difficult such a situation is and desperate people do desperate things. And that's an unfortunate reality of a world that we live in that has evil in it. Evil's going to happen, and sometimes that evil is the emergence of a system that we created. We meaning the white majority. And she wasn't using we that way. I am. And sometimes we lie in the bed we made. And that isn't exactly her point, but that isn't far off. So it is incredibly complicated. So what we have is roughly 42 million black people in the United States, 20% of whom live in poverty. I looked this up. So that's 8.4 million, roughly. And what we have is a lot of that in subsidized housing. And what those become is concentrated areas of poverty where we have desperate people living together. And again, desperate people doing desperate things. There is... Hmm. What's the right way to say this? What's the semi-politically correct way to say a lot of competition for resources, which creates conflict, which creates a normalcy for conflict. And I remember hearing a podcast, a Joe Rogan podcast, and a guy was talking about a book that he read, which I have not read, but it has a theory that I heard and I agree with. It was called White Liberal Black Redneck. And the idea was that because slavery was primarily in the Southeast, that that was the culture that when slavery ended, that black people absorbed, or rather, you know, through the, that's where they got their culture from. And the culture of the Southeast came from the Scottish Highlands, where it was what's called the honor culture, what some people call it. Malcolm Gladwell covered this in Outliers as well. But it is the idea that your reputation is relevant, highly relevant, for keeping your property. Therefore, people expect, there's an expectation that you will use violence to protect your property because people could steal your sheep. I don't know, it was the Highlands. And what kept people from stealing your sheep would be repercussions. Therefore, your threat of repercussions was very important. And as a cultural norm with a culture of conflict, that is part of the poor, the black experience in poverty, particularly when we put subsidized housing units very close to each other. And this is 
what we see in a lot of the big urban areas of this country, where I'm from Washington, D.C., New York, of course, Chicago, on and on. And this isn't just, I don't want to paint everybody with a broad brush, right? So that's what it sounds like. Dave Massman, you're saying that everybody's violent in the ghetto. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that that's a part of the equation. And it's part of what leads to a higher level of violence in those communities, right? So there's desperation, period. There's the honor culture. There is the concentration of people into a small area who are competing over resources because they're in poverty. And here's something I heard Barack Obama talk about, that there is a lot of over-masculinization in the black community, the poor black community especially, based on e-masculinization, of black men during segregation, Jim Crow. Like the times, I remember watching Malcolm X with Denzel Washington and he was, Malcolm X was serving a white guy on a train and the guy called him boy. And Malcolm X ran through a fantasy in his head of punching him or throwing the food in his face or something like that. But the idea that someone could call you boy and there would be no repercussions like that is it's very emasculating that's very disrespectful and it is the kind of thing that would burn your soul and you'd never forget and so my point there is there are a lot of factors that lead to the bigger part of a culture that would tend to be, tend to have violence. And more so, like, it's hard, right? Dave Messman, you're again saying that it's a community of violence. I'm using a baseline of the rest of the country. Dave Messman, you're comparing poverty against non-poverty. I am. I'm actually... It's hard, okay? This is nuanced and complex. And maybe... Maybe I'm even talking out of school. Like, of course I'm talking out of school because I shouldn't be talking about other cultural situations, but more in terms of maybe I don't know enough. Maybe if... Maybe it's just an eventuality that would happen. And I'm, I'm not even making it about race so much. I'm saying these are facts that exist. And I think the racial element is just a part of it. So I think we could take perhaps, perhaps, any race and do this. That we take away their culture, we give them honor culture, we put them in poverty, we put them in subsidized housing units where they're on top of each other, we put desperate people there, and perhaps more violence in that culture is the emergent result of any race. And it just happens to be black people. And I'm not saying just happens like any way to diminish that, 
but we have this temptation to be very walk on pins and needles when discussing this and not want to draw any conclusions where we feel like we're blaming the victim and that's hard i'm not trying to blame the victim i'm trying to talk about a situation as it exists and to say that there aren't problems in the black community dave Esman, everybody knows there are problems in the black community they do they do and part of part of solving about solving them is talking about them frankly in ways that people can understand and dissect the different parts so that we can come to a better understanding and our inability to discuss certain parts because they feel uncomfortable or because we don't want to feel like we're blaming the victim doesn't allow us to discuss a problem honestly so is there more violence in poor black communities most people would say yes i it's hard for me to imagine anybody would say no i think that's obviously apparent so my question was what am i comparing it against i don't know if there is a comparison but i guess we would go with per capita crimes uh, this number i don't have but number of crimes per however many people hundred thousand ten thousand there are higher rates in the black poor black communities and what i was going towards is and this isn't to say that everybody in poor black communities commits crimes or is a bad person by any stretch am i saying that but cultural norms do affect people they become an expectation not for behavior but it's sort of an an undercurrent of what is permissible and if everybody's expected to be a straight-a student you're more likely to be a straight-a student if if, if that's the undercurrent in your house or in your neighborhood and if there's an undercurrent of not needing to think ahead or make good long-term decisions or make let's just stick with that make good long-term decisions because you don't think that far ahead because the people around you aren't doing that because there's look it's just it isn't even about being black that's the hardest part right some of these things are just statistics of being poor i remember a friend of mine and i were discussing why i don't know if we were discussing poor black people or just poor people in general by the way he's black so i guess what i'm only saying that is it is it, it it's complicated it's always complicated to discuss race why do poor people not vote because they 
when you are thinking about where your next meal is going to come from, it is hard to think about one year, two year, ten years into the future. And not only is it hard to think of it, but you don't want to and you might resent people who do. And that resentment's part of it too. There is resentment. Dave Messman, you're you're painting with a broad brush again. Yes, I am. And it's an undercurrent that exists. And I think saying that that's not true is disingenuous. I mean, it's as somebody who lives near subsidized housing, it is it is a look that I can sense and feel and it, it is apparent and I what's odd what's odd as I say it I feel odd saying it that I will be judged for having for having that awareness and that I should that I should even though I'm aware of it, I shouldn't talk about it because it is representative of all the privilege that I have and I should just own this because my... that my talking about it is somehow a problem and I should just eat it. My discomfort's irrelevant. And on a level, it is. Look, let me be clear. My discomfort is irrelevant, okay? I'm acknowledging that it exists. I'm not saying it's a problem. I'm acknowledging that it exists. I'm acknowledging that there is, and as we talk about it even further, right? So we have 8.4 million people in poverty and a whole, and the other 34 million black people have also had to walk this walk this line, walk this difficult experience in the United States of 250 years of slavery, 100 years of segregation, Jim Crow, redlining, do, 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 and another 50 years of non-codified otherization that still leads to other otherizations, marginalizations. And it is this really difficult spot where we live side by side as two different cultures that give each other a lot of side eye. Um, I'm, I'm not speaking of myself, I'm speaking of the country. I'm trying. I'm just trying to speak frankly about. Maybe I lost it when I started talking about my personal experience, but it's what we see and what we feel. And maybe younger generations would disagree with this. I think they would agree with disagree with it more. I think they do see color less. That we are often aware of 
the racial dynamics at play whenever there are racial dynamics at play. And what's the relevance of that? It is, well, it's tribal. It's tribal to associate with those who are like you. And on a level, I mean, that sounds like a legitimization of racism. It's not. It's your family. It's your town. It's your country. I mean, it, we're, it just happens that way. It is a biological thing. I've heard Brett Weinstein talk about this. It's in-group preference. When resources are scarce, you are going to retreat to the familiar, people who can protect you because people are safer in groups. And where am I going with all of this? I'm actually way off topic. I want to talk about, let's get back to the topic. Let's get back to three kids, 14, 14, 13, who killed an 18-year-old college student in the course of a botched robbery when they wanted to get her cell phone. And what I was talking about was why there is a tendency towards a larger tendency towards violence in poor black communities and resolving conflict through violence and on a level that leads to higher crime and this is complicated because we talk about social justice reform not social justice reform criminal justice reform so much and we look at the prison system which is disproportionately minority but particularly black and that's really difficult because as a group poor people regardless of race commit more violent crimes they do and that's again desperate people do desperate things so then we take into account that the largest there's a large group of as i discussed earlier black people in poverty who have a cultural norm of a large i don't want to say a cultural norm of conflict i want to say it is more a more prevalent part of their cultural norm is conflict and that leads to at times crime and imprisonment and that isn't to say that there aren't black people in prison who shouldn't be of course that's true every marijuana possession arrest should be vacated and a statistic I've heard and read is that black and white people use marijuana at the same rates, but the arrest rate for black people is four times as high, which of course is absurd. 
that's that's the example of a racist system and the idea that black people get harsher sentences for the same crime or they don't get parole or they have less access to lawyers or there's a um, greater suspicion or less less leeway, less um, deference given by police and prosecutors. Sort of the uh, white kid, let's call him Joey. Joey, you know, he's a good kid. He won't do that again. Let's let him off light. And then same crime committed by Jamal. You know, throw the book at him. You know, it's sort of that idea. And... Sure, that's part of it too. It's incredibly complex and people make bad decisions. People and people should be held accountable for their bad decisions. And if we, here's a quote from, well, look, no, I don't want to make any points that the system isn't racist, but not every person who's in jail who is a minority is in there for wrong reasons some people make bad decisions a lot of people make bad decisions and that happens and so that's going to lead into my next topic which is this is something AOC brought up probably from a broken home. And I gather she didn't know that. I gather she doesn't have that information because she said, I believe she said probably. And I don't think it's an unsafe bet. I looked the statistic up. 67% of black children are in a single parent household. Actually, I might have the statistic wrong. 67% of households are single parent. I'm not that but the point is that statistic is a large number of single parent households and that can be looked at a couple different ways. So one of the reasons is uh, a racist justice system puts somebody in jail who shouldn't be there. For example, something like marijuana possession or something that they didn't get you know, there a reason they shouldn't be there. Two, somebody made a bad decision and ends up in jail. Or three, the father, and this is the case at least 95% of the time that the father doesn't stick around. I mean, uh, when there's a single parent household, it's not a single father, it's a single mother is what I'm trying to say there. Uh, that the father didn't stick around. And... That is more prevalent in the poor, I, I'm pausing because I don't want to say something stupid. That is more prevalent among poorer communities. And like if we looked at that, if we looked at the socioeconomic status of fathers, we would find that more fathers in higher social classes stick around. 
And it's not necessarily because of money. It Here's my bet is that one, there is probably more protection used, probably more um, condoms or birth control. Two, probably, I'd guess, more abortions higher in the socioeconomic ladder. Three, I'd guess that there are there is more concern for long-term decision-making. That goes back to my previous point about knowing where your next meal is coming from and making better long-term decisions. That those two just go together. They just do. And one of those things is if we have sex, there could be a baby, so let's not make a bad decision because it's a life changer. And the less one thinks about future repercussions, the less one is going to be concerned for taking care of birth control. And this is said, you know, we don't say it a lot. I don't think anywhere near is enough. There's nothing that will put you into poverty. Well, there are things, but it's a pretty good indicator that you'll end up in poverty if you have children that you can't take care of when you're not ready. And it's it's difficult, right? Because you can't work and you gotta because you gotta take care of your child, child care costs and it's a tremendous emotional and physical and mental burden. And particularly when you are when I say not ready, I usually mean young. Uh, and Dave Aspen, you're painting with a broad brush. I am. I'm generalizing. But some of these generalizations hold true. Like, to the extent that they're a known big problem. And if you deny people the ability to say these generalizations, what happens is they're not tackled well enough. Dave Espen, people know about these problems. Do they? Well, then why is it such a problem still? I I didn't want to have to quote this. I didn't, because this is ending up, I wanted this to be a really even-handed podcast, but I don't know where this quote comes from. I'm quoting Jason Whitlock, Jason Whitlock, who I heard quoted George Bush, George W. Bush, who I believe quotes somebody else. But I don't, I don't know how it starts, but the soft bigotry of low expectations. That at a certain point, we expect people to act in their best interest. And people have agency, people have free will, and it is incumbent upon each of us to use that agency and free will to make good decisions. And now we're going to get into the idea that these kids are 13, 14, 14, 
where were their role models? That's tough. If they're from a broken home, do they have, and they were all boys, do they have men around? And this is tough. Dave Messman, are you saying all boys need fathers? I'm not saying they need fathers. I think they need male role models. Terry Crews made this point, and he was killed for it. That men, boys, males, need guidance. Because, frankly, all men have this warrior blood in their veins. All men going back in time were killers. Every male in your line at some point was a killer. And there's still some darkness and anger in there. And that is the way that we learn to handle that usually comes from a male role model. There is a a tightrope that we walk, and it, that sounds that makes it sound like it's hard, but it it's a it's a balance, and it's modeled. It's not taught, and it can only be modeled by another man. It's best modeled by another man. I'm I'm sure it can be taught, and I'm sure it can be modeled by a woman. But there's this special bond between a boy and his mentor and maybe it can be replicated another way but there's definitely a best practice definitely and when Terry Crews talked about this he was killed by women who said you know the justice system locked up my boy's father or I left my the father of my children because he was a abusive or what about lesbians what about single mothers by choice and none of that diminishes the reality that boys need their fathers or boys need male role models and there's there's a teaching of honor and a different kind of morality, a different way to handle the violent impulses that come with testosterone. It isn't, isn't a coincidence, I bet, that these kids were just getting their big testosterone juices in their early teens. It leads to, like, this is all kids. This isn't just these kids by any race that we get this rush of, I don't know, jeez, uh, I wish I could remember the name of the author. He said testosterone has two main uses, the two main messages that it gives to men. Kill it, and I'll use the nicer way to say this, kill it or mate with it. And... I don't know. I guess I'm saying that 
male role models are important. And when we have such a high rate of single parent households, it's a sabotage for the generation that comes behind it. And I'm not putting anybody on this. I'm not putting any blame. I'm just saying, here's something that exists. 67% single parent households. And there's going to be an emergent result from that. It's going to be a generation of hurting people, of confused people, of people who are missing something that comes from the proper rearing of children that comes from loving two family, two parent household. Dave Espen, you sound like Dan Quayle in 1988. I guess? Like, who's against a good family? That's crazy. Uh, and I'm not saying you don't get divorced. I'm not saying don't leave abusive people. I'm saying that we have a standard. We have something that works really well, and we should say out loud it's the preference. And to not say that it's preferred is, well, one, it's crazy. But two, it's part of this paradigm shift that we're doing where we don't want people to feel upset. So let's take that Terry Crews example. Male role models are important. Basically, fathers are important or father figures are important. And then he gets pushback from some cases where people were upset by what he said. And that becomes the narrative. Terry Crews, you're out of touch. You don't care about, you know, all these people who don't fit in the situation that you're talking about. Okay, fair enough. And fathers are really, really, really important. And for men and women, we always talk about this stereotype is uh, that girl's a stripper. Well, she must not have had a father. Like it, it, it is this common understanding that we have that fathers are important and when we lose that as a cultural norm everybody loses and when we when as that cultural norm erodes in a community and right so Dave Messman are you saying that what exactly are you saying is the cause of 67% of households of the black community being one-parent households. I don't know. I don't have the numbers on what numbers, so I put three different reasons that could be, right? Somebody's in jail for the wrong reason, somebody's in jail for the right reasons because they made a bad decision, or a father who didn't stick around. I guess there's there are other reasons, like the woman chose to leave, A, for a divorce, or B, because the father was abusive. But this is one of those things that people don't say that 
there is a large that's now that's judgmental there is a percentage of those fatherless households that come from short-term decision making of creating a pregnancy that nobody was prepared for and nobody people weren't ready to take care of and a percentage of fathers chose not to stick around because they felt like they could avoid the responsibility and look that happens in every community okay let's here's the hard part right because i'm speaking specifically about one community it happens in all communities particularly and as we go down the socioeconomic ladder more so and i think here's the hard part right this is that difficult thing and also dave Espen, you're punching down dave Espen, you're talking about a culture you don't belong to dave Espen. These are things that are known and are spoken about. And we don't need you reminding us. That's tough. I I wonder how much that's true. Because there's media that wants to look at society and externalize all blame to a system. And that doesn't hold anyone accountable. And that's what's so difficult, right? Because we're talking about the most actually i remember hearing muhammad ali talk about native americans which i thought was surprising he was discussing nobody has been treated more horribly than black people in this country except for maybe native americans which i thought was a funny thing for him to say not funny but just um it's something we rarely think about it's rarely in our conscious awareness how, how the fact that we tried to commit genocide or we did commit genocide against uh, people we just didn't I'll leave that alone. And we've treated black people horribly. We've destroyed their self-image. We stripped them of their culture. We have thrown them disproportionately in cages. We have thrown them into pockets of poverty. We have codified laws. We've created a, a system whereby we keep them less than and all that shakes out and Dave Messman, you still want to criticize. I'm not, I guess I am. I don't know if I'm criticizing. I'm, I'm saying that, and this is probably the point of the pushback against AOC is that all these horrific things happen, happen and have happened, and, and 
people need to make the best decisions for them. People need to think ahead. People need to be responsible for their own happiness and well-being to the extent that they can. If one is making decisions that makes one's own life worse, the, the argument could be they don't know any better. Okay, that's one. And that's a difficult one. I remember uh, I was in a more or less a text debate. It was about voter ID laws. And the question was, they asked a bunch of white people, why are voter ID laws racist? And the answers were, let every black person can get ID, let every black person drives, has a driver's, knows where the DMV is, let every person has internet access. And then they went to Harlem and then asked a series of black people those same questions. They were like, those are ridiculous racist answers. And on that, on a similar level, Expecting people not to make the best decisions for their own lives and saying they can't, I don't, that sounds racist to me. I mean, a lot of people have say having this conversation is racist. I don't know why. I do know why. Uh, the answer is because people are going to feel bad. That's the short answer. The longer answer is, well, I know what they'll call it racist. They'll call it racist because there's an expectation for how people speak about such things. And it is never to blame the victim. And I, I'm trying to think of, I'm sure I blamed the victim at some point here. Um, I'd like to think well, I, I can't, I don't know if I can justify it. I mean, I, I'm not, and here's what, I didn't even plan to be this uneven-handed, which it feels like I've been through the course of this podcast. What I, because it, maybe I haven't covered it enough, how being black in this country is incredibly difficult from how society treats you, how the media treats you, how employers, people, the looks, the expectations, the stereotypes, the, it is all of it together, this impossible situation, this impossible mix of difficulty. I remember I probably wouldn't have this quote right. It is, no, you know what? 
here's a great point. Here's something that I read. Um, poverty also makes it harder for people to think. So on, on a couple different levels, right? I've heard Andrew Yang say this, that when people are living, mm, geez, is it paycheck to paycheck? When they are insecure about money, their IQ goes down 13 points. And I'm not making this about any race. I'm talking this about every race. And his point was when people were, and he's talking about 2016 specifically, when people were more worried about money, they were more likely to get their IQ lowered. They were more likely to get tribal because they were insecure. I think that's just a, what I talked about earlier, that when people sense difficulty and pain, they collapse into tribes. And that's part of that. And I heard Michael Irvin say that the, ah, this I'm not going to get right, the constant threat of violence in poor black communities makes people make worse decisions. It is a, it is a weight on their minds. And that is, look, it's all, it all melds together in this horrible, horrible soup that we've created. And one of the emergent results is these three kids who stabbed Tessa Majors in December 2019. And it is, it's the emergent of a system. It is an expectation that when we throw all these things together, all this difficulty, some of it through codification by law, some of it through the non-codified treatment and destruction of a culture. The I've read this. I mean, first, I did look. I I shouldn't be pushing conspiracy theories, but I'm going to do it. I'm just saying it's a theory that both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were killed by the government. Definitely, we know that. Oh, geez, J. Edgar Hoover um, had files at least on Martin Luther King, but probably Malcolm X. I'm sure but that the black power movements of the 60s were undermined and broken up and treated poorly, like sort of basically crushed by the government. And that's part of it too, right? It's part of, uh, geez, was it Omaha? It was a prosperous part of the city that was as I understand it, a, f a friend of mine who told, knows more about this than I do told me about this. Um, and I also saw it in the African American History Museum that white people from the other side of town came over and 
uh, trashed it, burned it down, and broke a bunch of windows and, like, destroyed it. And that's horrific, of course. And where am I going with this? Over the course of hundreds of years, we took people and made the situation as horrible for them as we could, short of genocide. And created desperation. Desperate people do desperate things. And this tragedy, because every murder is a tragedy, and I don't, what, what's my answer? Like, all I'm doing is discussing the nuance. The nuance is it is there are a lot of things that contributed to this system and it's not as simple as people are responsible for their decisions because a lot of decisions have been made over time some by these kids and their decisions maybe don't even matter like they're still children who should have had a better moral foundation but it's up to the people who should have given them moral foundation there they won't get any blame probably but they should and what's the system that kept them from getting that moral giving that moral foundation where did that come from who created that right what's the percentage of this united states system that destroyed this culture and even within that culture what's the responsibility of people to create a healthy environment for these kids even though it's hard I mean it's complicated it's difficult and that's going to be the end of this episode of How to Human this really long difficult how to human so i'm pretty sure this one should get some comments or death threats so send those to how to human cdt at gmail.com how to human cdt at gmail.com i think i'll do a small postscript here This is really hard to talk about. I, I hope, my hope is that I talked about it in a way that would allow people to understand it and hear things that may have been uncomfortable without turning it off because it's so common for people to throw somebody in a category. And that's what we do. We silo people 
we silo ideas into acceptable, not acceptable. And when somebody becomes not acceptable, so do their opinions. Or rather, first their opinions are not acceptable, then the person is not acceptable. And it doesn't matter to me if I'm acceptable, but we start with trading ideas that aren't aren't unreasonable. So let's take let's take a, a football field, hundred yard football field, and let's say my ideas are between the thirty yard lines. Right, so I'm covering part of the field. Like there are many really racist things I could say that would be like the five yard line, which I didn't say. Not that I would, but I'm saying that we have to have room for nuanced arguments that make people feel uncomfortable, even if they're like bad arguments. People can make bad arguments that you disagree with, and it's still okay. And there's just so little tolerance for that when we talk about race. Because nobody wants to blame the victim, and nobody should. Because that's not, I don't know, it's not right, it's not, it doesn't make people feel good. It That's complicated. Uh, well, because if you're a victim... You deserve no blame. It reminds me of... Yeah, I'll do this. I remember learning in... We were talking about tort. Tort law. About what do you do... Great example. Okay. You are driving a car you crash into somebody riding a motorcycle and the guy on the motorcycle it's totally the guy in the car's fault and the guy in the motorcycle has horrific damage um, except he's not wearing a helmet so how much of that is your fault and how much of that is his fault and it's fine Look, there are situations where somebody's 100% at fault and somebody else is 0% at fault. 100%, of course that's true. And I'm not, right? So this is what's so difficult. If people have agency and free will on some level, like that's what we believe in, that's what this country is about, even despite horrible situations and circumstances. If there's a, an element of it, there's got to be a little bit of percentage of it. I mean, that's what we're talking about these kids, right? These kids are going to go to jail, I don't know, for the rest of their lives because they had some level of free will. And I don't think anybody disagrees with that. You can't murder. And there are other things you can't do, too. And no matter where you came from, you can't do them. And it's up to the individual to make a better choice. That's what agency and free will is. And not everything is, to use a phrase, black or white. There's gray. 
in every situation. And I don't want to, and here's the problem too. Dave Nesman, you are on some level blaming the victim because you're making any kind of statement where uh, black people bear any responsibility for some of the choices that they were put in by a system that was totally racist and totally against them. Kind of. I don't want to make any kind of grand pronouncements. I want to go situation by situation with a scalpel and look at each gray area one by one and say, here are the factors that contributed to this system and here's the emergent that came out and it's really difficult and it's really nuanced and making it simple doesn't solve problems. So who knows if that'll get lost? Who knows how many death threats I'll get? I'm hoping for seven. So that is the end of this episode of How to Human.